Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 32, Death So Near. The Polish soil groaned under the weight of another 1.5 million invaders and 6,000 tanks as the Soviet Union came on from the east. The people of eastern Poland desperately wanted to see these men in uniform as their saviors. But once the soldiers had disarmed the locals, this hope was brutally dashed. The people of Warsaw groaned as well, as the capital had just run out of coffins. Yet bodies needed bearing continued appearing, as the Germans were resisted in the western half of Warsaw. Soon, random mounds of dirt could be seen throughout the capital, as survivors buried the newly made corpses wherever they could. And as the medicine and ammunition started running out, these mounds of dirt, with handmade signs over them, quickly grew in number. The bombing of Warsaw went on daily. Buildings were brought down, lives lost, the rubble rose throughout the streets. Yet strangely through it all, the Barrison and Bauman Children's Hospital, located in the Jewish Quarter, remained unharmed. Given the accuracy of the German bombers, Surely Berlin had plans for this structure. The sole remaining radio station, Warsaw 2, went off the air on September 21st. No more would the defiant populace hear the voice of Mayor Starzynski twice each day. Yet his very last message stirred their souls, like no other speech he had made. Quote, I wanted Warsaw to be great. I believed she would be great. We drew plans, we poured over blueprints, we sketched Warsaw's future greatness, and I thought it would take 50 or 100 years to accomplish. But as I speak to you today, looking through the window, I can see in the haze of smoke and red flames that Warsaw is already great, a magnificent, indestructible, undaunting fighting spirit. And though in places where there are supposed to be brand new orphanages, there are now ruins, where there are supposed to be beautiful parks, there are now torn barricades littered with corpses. Though our libraries burn, though fires rage in our hospitals, it is not in fifty years, but today, that Warsaw has reached the pinnacle of her greatness, defending the honor and pride of the entire country. Unquote. One can only hope that the mayor's speech lit the hearts of Warsaw's residents, because the next day, the city lost power. The day after that, it lost telephone and telegraph service. The day after that, the city lost running water, as the main pumping station was wrecked by German bombs, which left the defenders fighting the invaders on one side and the hundreds of out-of-control fires with no water on the other. But as bad as the situation was in unoccupied Warsaw, the mayor and his supporters continued to fight. They were fighting for time. It couldn't be much longer before Marshal Schmigli Riditz sent help in whatever form from the east. After all, each defending gun was down to 20 rounds of ammo. Food was running out, as was medicine and water. Then came news of the marshal, but not what those manning the barricades was expecting. Soon word got out that Schmigli Riditz had left the country, turning up in Romania. The people still in Poland, whether a supporter of the marshal or not, were now disgusted with the man. 
but he would do no better than those left behind. The Romanian government captured the leader and his entourage, holding them prisoner. As the people no longer had a national figure to look up to, they looked after each other. The combat continued, panzers were taken out, people were pulled out of bombed wreckage, but all this came at a high cost to the defenders. This defiance baffled and frustrated Hitler. Resistance like this was not built into the timetable of Fall Weiss or Case White. Poland needed to capitulate before their courage inspired Britain or France, or Britain and France, to do something foolhardy. So, on September 21st, Hitler ordered an increase in the assault on the capital. Now, 900 howitzers and 400 heavy bombers were to focus their destructive ability on Warsaw, until the Varsovians, mostly civilians at this point, saw the error of their ways. The victims remember the start of this raised campaign against them as Rainy Monday. Of all the casualties, mostly nameless and left unburied, another person was almost added to that list. Seema Rothhauser, the high school student who, just a few short weeks ago, hoped the sound of the air raid warning would get him out of school for a day. Having his grandfather's three-story house collapse on him after it was hit by three bombs, the teenager woke up to find himself painfully pinned down and a large piece of wood stuck in his throat. He slowly pulled it out and watched as blood came spewing out. Later he would find out that although his windpipe had been pierced, none of his arteries had. Now made slick by the blood, Simha made his way out of the wreckage, only two minutes later, collapse into someone's arms. This stranger, who could have easily left him to die, instead carried him to a makeshift shelter. When Simha woke up two days later, he was told that his family's home was gone. But what's more, his grandparents, his two aunts, a cousin, and his 14-year-old brother, Israel, were gone as well. His world had now been reduced to his parents and his two sisters. Simha's story was replicated thousands of times over throughout the city, which could not defend itself any longer. Not against this. A peace with the invaders was negotiated for September 28th. The deal said the Germans would hold a triumphal parade through the city during the first week of October, which left the survivors little time to dig up and properly bury the thousands who had hastily been covered with dirt wherever the families could find a place, in parks, in the yards on all sides of the family house, pretty much anywhere not encased with cement. But with motivating fear and methodical work, the exhuming was completed, but it was the pieces of bodies that were the hardest to face or touch. Did this arm belong to one of our family? Just because it was found in the yard doesn't mean it's a relative. But it didn't matter now. The pieces of flesh were gathered and buried along with family members. In a way, all of Warsaw was now one enormous grieving family. The date for the victory parade was set for October 5th. Yet the newly conquered and partially destroyed city was not fit to receive the victorious army. Something had to be done about this. So, Varsovians were put to work 
filling in holes created by German bombs, dismantling the various barricades that tried to keep the Germans out, and in general cleaning up the streets that previously had blocked the Germans' path. With cruelty in mind, older Jewish men with long beards and kafkin frocks were chosen or coerced more than any other group for the dirtiest and hardest of work. As the elderly men were put to work, German news camera crews started jumping out of nearby trucks to film the gruesomely humorous work. These films would be shown throughout Germany to show everyone that the days of Jewish domination were over. A white ribbon was to be cut at the beginning of the parade, a ribbon brought from Germany especially for this occasion. But the highlight of the ceremony was when Hitler himself would arrive and drive through these very formerly defiant streets to award medals to the bravest of his men. On October 1st, per the capitulation, German troops entered the city and took control. And once they were in, it was clear to all that it was time to celebrate. Finally, after years, decades even, Poland no longer existed, but was, as it should be, simply additional land that belonged to either Germany or Russia. Although the large metropolis was heavily scarred, some places completely destroyed, its people running low on every kind of supplies, the lights suddenly switched on at their major hotels. The Bristol, the Hotel Vienna, the European, suddenly burst into light, sound, and champagne as portable generators were brought in to allow the conquerors to toast their success. The champagne came from broken-into cellars. As for the people that had just lost their country, and most likely friends or family members, those that returned to the capital from the east, after all, the war was over, now found their homes were either damaged, destroyed, or taken over by others whose homes were damaged or destroyed. It quickly became a time of scavenging for those able to walk and carry, and for the women, well, the younger of them, to sell their bodies to the German soldiers. At least their money was worth something. The currency of Poland had lost four-fifths of its value since September 1st. As the Varsovians were made to clean the streets and take down all flags or banners of the former Poland, the Germans were busy, when not partying at night, stringing up their banners and standards. They were hung everywhere, by the hundreds. After all, the Fuhrer was coming. After a hard day of labor, trying to erase the damage done by the invaders, the people of Warsaw gathered around at night and faced each other and their situation. How could their army have been beaten so quickly? How could Schmigli Riddits run away like that? Where were the British and the French? The former president, Ignatius Masiski, who resigned from office from the safety of a Romanian prison camp, was barely worth a thought or shrug of the shoulders. Soon the people of Warsaw heard that another Polish government, this one not like the Senatsian regime, but a coalition council instead, had formed in Paris and was recognized by the Allies. The reaction to this was, good for them. As the National Socialists had become masters of the capital, just like Stalin's men in Russia and Mussolini's, but less so, in Rome, the Germans quickly put up posters on the bombed-out houses that read, 
England, this is your doing. With the picture below was of Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, dressed in his tails, with his back to a burning house that represented Poland. Of course, it's silly for the invaders to place the blame of destruction on those that promised to help. But still, after those long nights around fires, wondering about their predicament and future, those posters held a grain of truth. Where were the Allies, our Allies? Even though the fighting was over here, were they rising up and destroying the German war machine somewhere else, with the idea of fighting their way to Poland? The truth, when it was discovered, left the people feeling hopeless. On the morning of October 5th, Adolf Hitler flew into Poland. Once he was out of the plane, he immediately entered his six-wheeled Mercedes that would take him to the center of the capital. This would be his first and last visit to the city. It was almost his last day on earth. Touring the city, the Mercedes stopped at Pilsudski Square for a quick photo op. The square was just two blocks from the Jewish quarter. Pilsudski Square got its name from the Polish hero who helped fight back communist forces at the gates of Warsaw in the 1920s. But now the square was renamed after the hero of Nazi Germany. The motor tour ended several hours later. The people of the city warned to vacate all buildings on the Führer's route and to stay away from the windows or be immediately shot. Then the black Mercedes pulled up to the viewing stand where Hitler got out, climbed up the steps, and launched into his speech of German might and Europe's future. The two were to be closely intertwined. Many of the Poles that risked glimpsing the German leader assumed someone would make an attempt on the man's life. Surely there was a pile of dynamite or explosives under the reviewing stand, right? Someone was just waiting for the best moment to detonate it. But there was nothing under the stand except dirt and concrete. The bomb, very much real, consisting of 500 pounds of dynamite that was to kill the Nazi leader and gain vengeance, the Polish were way past justice, was actually buried at the intersection of New World Street and Jerusalem Boulevard. As the Varsovians knew, Hitler's car would have to drive over to reach the city center. But the leader of Nazi Germany, the architect of so many deaths for the next six years, did not die that day. As his car was driving over the explosives, the man with his finger on the trigger thought the car belonged to General von Baskowitz, the leading commander of the capital. He assumed Der Führer's car was next. Then he realized his mistake too late as the German leader pulled up to the reviewing stand. Later, the man would lament, he passed right under our noses. Greetings, members. Um, so, um, the following is a speech that Churchill gave after the war had been declared for about a month. And keep in mind when you're listening to, to it that we, the Allies, did not know about the secret pact between Germany and Stalin, uh, which helped start the war. So just keep that in mind. But as you all probably know, 
Churchill had absolutely no love for the Bolsheviks, uh, the communists, or anything like that. So he's going to be pretty hard on them. It would have been even worse, of course, if he had known about the secret pact. So um, this episode's completely random winner of a coffee mug is Steve B. from Clarksville, Maryland. So I'll be emailing him, and he'll have his choice of a Churchill mug and an FDR mug, which is pretty cool. Or if he wants just to offer him whatever, is a Caesar mug from my other podcast. Uh, my favorite from that one is um, Coffee, No Worst Enemy, No Better Friend, which is what was written on um, Soul of the Dictator's um, gravestone. That's how he wanted to be remembered. So I will be contacting him. Uh, I will put out the second membership episode of this month very soon, definitely before the end of the month. I hope everyone in these states has a uh, great Memorial Day weekend, and I'll see you as soon as I can with the next episode. The British Empire and the French Republic have been at war with Nazi Germany for a month tonight. We have not yet come at all to the severity of fighting which is to be expected. But three important things have happened. First, Poland has been again overrun by two of the great powers which held her in bondage for 150 years but were unable to quench the spirit of the Polish nation. The heroic defense of Warsaw shows that the soul of Poland is indestructible and that she will rise again like a rock which may for a spell be submerged by a tidal wave but which remains a rock. What is the second event of this first month? It is, of course, the assertion of the power of Russia. Russia has pursued a cold policy of self-interest. We could have wished that the Russian armies should be standing on their present line as the friends and allies of Poland instead of as invaders. But that the Russian army should stand on this line was clearly necessary for the safety of Russia against the Nazi menace. At any rate, the line is there. And an eastern front has been created which Nazi Germany does not dare assail. What is the third event? Here I speak as First Lord of the Admiralty, uh, with a special caution. Uh, it would seem that the U-boat attack upon the life of the British Isles has not so far proved successful. It is true that when they sprang out upon us and we were going about our ordinary business with 2,000 ships in constant movement, every day upon the seas, they managed to do some serious damage. But the Royal Navy has immediately attacked the U-boats and is hunting them night and day. I will not say without mercy, because God forbid we should ever part company with that. But at any rate, with zeal, and uh, not altogether without relish, and it looks tonight very much 
as if it is the U-boat who are feeling the weather, and not the Royal Navy or the worldwide commerce of Britain. A week has passed. Mr. Churchill then went on. Over here. Directions have been given by the government to prepare for a war of at least three years. That does not mean that victory may not be gained in a shorter time. How soon it will be gained depends upon how long Herr Hitler and his group of wicked men whose hands are stained with blood and soiled with corruption can keep their grip upon the docile, unhappy German people. It was for Hitler to say when the war would begin. But it is not for him or for his successor to say when it will end. It began when he wanted it. And it will end only when we are convinced that he has had enough. We may remember the words of old John Bright after the American Civil War was over when he said to an audience of English working folk, at last, after the smoke of the battlefield had cleared away, the horrid shape which had cast its shadow over the whole continent had vanished and was gone forever.